It's Monday, January 6th, 1936. It's around 11.30 in the morning, and we're up in the Atlantic province of New Brunswick, Canada, at a remote railway outpost called Pacific Junction. There's really nothing up here, apart from the train station, the station master's house, some squatter shacks, a lot of snow, and a whole lot of woods. A young trapper, Otto Blakeney, has just finished chopping logs for the morning. He decides to go and get some lunch from his friend, Philip Lake, who lives in one of those squatter shacks over by the railway junction. He trudges through the heavy snow drifts, heading for the warm hospitality of his good friend. When he arrives at Philip's shack, he's horrified to find that the whole place has been destroyed by a fire. Now these huts, they're made of just a little more than panel boards, and they're lit by oil lamps. So fires aren't unusual. This place, it's utterly devastated. And where are Philip Lake, his partner Bertha, and their two baby children? Anxiously, stepping closer to the ruined building, Otto sees a body lying face up in the doorway. The flesh is almost totally burned away. Two distinctive gold teeth tell him immediately that he's looking at the corpse of his friend, Philip Lake. In a panic, he runs back to the railroad to find the station master, Omar Lutz. On the way, he sees a baby's bottle and some bloody footprints in the snow. But he doesn't stop running until he gets to Omar's house. After calling the Mounties, he and Omar head back to the Lake family's shack. About 200 meters from the ruin, they find Philip's common-law wife, Bertha. Her cold, dead body is almost completely naked and lying on a patch of trampled, blood-soaked snow. The blood appears to have come from a deep gash on the back of her head. Tragically, just yards away, they find the frozen body of the couple's 18-month-old son, Jackie. It looks as though Bertha tried to save her baby from the blaze, but fell just a short way from the house. Perhaps her head injury was bad enough to render her unconscious, and she finally succumbed to the freezing temperatures of the Canadian winter. With no sign of the youngest child, six-month-old Betty, in the wreckage of the shack or anywhere around it, the men assume she must have been inside with her father. It looks like the whole family had been wiped out by the fire. A shocking accident, but one that could have easily happened in any of these rickety wooden dwellings. But this, no, this is no accident. The murder of the Lake family will be remembered as one of the worst, most brutal crimes in Canadian history, and one that puts the famous slogan to the test, do the Mounties really always get their man. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're up in the frozen backwoods of New Brunswick, Canada, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police the Mounties to you and I. 
when a much-liked family is found dead at their burnt-out cabin in the woods. Locals assume it's a terrible accident, but the Mounties suspect murder, and the motive turns out to be one of the most desperate they'll encounter. From Noiser, this is the Mounties Get Their Man, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police is a force to be reckoned with. They were formed in 1920, when the federal police and parliamentary police forces merged. By the 1930s, these red-coated officers have become so popular in the public imagination that they've even had comic books made about them. They're famously organized, bureaucratic, and tightly run. And, according to legend, they always get their man. One of the lead officers on the scene in Pacific Junction is a Mountie famous for his tracking and sleuthing skills, Sergeant Bedford G. Peters. He immediately sets to work assessing exactly what happened at the shack. Leaving Philip Lake's body in the doorway, Sergeant Peters heads out into the snow. It's slow progress, and his snowshoes are the only thing stopping him from sinking into the soft drifts. He walks around 200 meters away from the burnout cabin, where he bends to examine the body of Philip's common-law wife, Bertha Ring. Her skin is tinged with blue, her flesh frozen solid. She has no burn marks, at least none visible on her body. So she obviously escaped the hut before the fire took hold but she does have a deep cut on the back of her head, and the snow around her is washed with blood and trampled flat. She's dressed in nothing but a thin slip of cloth wrapped around her hips. Now, whether she died thanks to her head injury or the cold is unclear. Certainly, she wouldn't have survived long outside wearing just a slip, even without the deep cut. Close to her, is the body of her 18-month-old son, Jackie. Sergeant Peters figures that she must have fled the burning house with him in her arms. Searching inside the wrecked cabin, they find some tiny charred bones, which they believe to be remains of the couple's other infant child, six-month-old baby Betty. Assessing the scene, it appears that the cabin caught fire, probably from a spilled oil lamp and that Philip and Bertha both perished, trying to save themselves and their family from the flames. But once the bodies of the four family members have been removed, the Mounties begin to find some interesting clues that make them think twice about those initial assumptions. Firstly, it looks like there were two distinct sets of footprints leading from the shack all the way to Bertha's body and beyond. To an experienced tracker like Sergeant Peters, those footsteps look suspicious. Rather than running from the cabin to avoid the flames, it looks like Bertha was chased. Now, this theory is further supported by more footprints leading away from her body towards the railway tracks. One large set and one smaller, and a drag mark accompanying the larger prints that look as though it's from some kind of stick. 
Following these prints, the Mounties soon find a large leather glove, and inside that, a blue and white woolen mitten. They keep both as possible evidence. The Mounties follow the prints, searching for more clues, but the snow is starting to fall heavily again. And it's not long before the trail literally goes cold, covered up completely by new flurries. The Mounties turn back to the cabin to assess the grim scene left by the fire. Picking through the rubble, they find that most of the family's meager possessions have been destroyed. There are no clues to be had there, so they turn their attention to finding out more about the victims and get busy talking to everyone who knew the family. 30-year-old Philip Lake was a big man, a strapping Newfoundlander with arms like tree trunks and a soul like butter. People describe him as kind, compassionate, and a friend to all. Despite his family barely having enough to go around, they'd always make room at their table and offered lodgings in the form of their hen house to trappers staying out in the woods, snaring rabbits for their own meals. As for Bertha, well, she was clearly a courageous woman. You see, at the time, her relationship with Philip would have been quite controversial because despite having two children together, the couple weren't married. In fact, Bertha was still married to another man called Marshall Ring. But everyone around still thought of Philip and Bertha as a man and wife, and everyone the Mounties speak to says they were generous and sociable and shared what little they had with anyone who needed it. And boy, did some people need it. It was the Wall Street crash of 1930 that triggered the Great Depression. As the global economy struggled, jobs were cut and livelihoods were ruined. By 1936, the unemployment rate in Canada was around 30%. That's one in five Canadians relying on government support. And even that wasn't enough to help keep food on the table. Up in New Brunswick, where the lakes had made their home, the main industries of timber, paper, and fishing had all been decimated, leaving families hungry and often homeless. In Moncton, the nearest town to the Lakes Pacific Junction shack, poverty is the norm. Many families live hand to mouth, struggling to find the next meal and petty crime is commonplace. But murder is most definitely not. As shockwaves ripple across the district, the pressure is on the legendary Mounties to solve this horrific crime. Fortunately, a good lead comes in early when one of the locals they interview mentions spotting a possible suspect. One of those banisters, he says. Apparently, he saw one of the Bannister brothers walking up the railway tracks towards Pacific Junction on the 5th of January at around 6 p.m. Now, Bannister is a name the Mounties are already familiar with. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects, the vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, 
But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Brothers Daniel and Arthur Bannister, who live with their mother May and two sisters, have both been arrested in the past. Daniel for begging, and Arthur for vagrancy. The Bannisters are a desperately poor family and rely on handouts from charity and the odd bit of casual labor to survive. Neither of the young men finish school, so both can barely read or write. They struggle for work, and although Arthur's often up in the woods trapping rabbits, the whole family lives in a constant state of famine. Their father abandoned them all when the children were very young, leaving their mother, May, to raise them alone. No easy task in the Depression-ridden 1930s, but May has managed, just about. With a little help from Red Cross and a couple of wealthier supporters from Moncton who offer work where they can. Now, Arthur Bannister is one of those waifs and strays that regularly visits Philip Lake and Bertha and usually stays in one of their hen houses when he's up tracking out in the woods. So it's not unusual for him to be spotted in the area. But the fact that he was seen there on the day of the fire is ringing alarm bells for the Mounties. Armed with the mitten they found in the snow, they head over to the banister house and hammer on the door. After a long wait, the door creaks open, and the older banister brother, Daniel, peers out. The house behind him is a picture of squalor and deprivation. Daniel himself looks malnourished and ashen. His eyes are sunken in a sallow face, which only lights up when he sees the mitten they've brought. That's mine, he says happily. When the officers ask when he last had his mittens, Daniel says he lent them to his younger brother, Arthur, when he went off trapping early in the week. He says that Arthur must have lost one of them out in the woods. Not sure if this is just a convenient lie, the Mounties decide to take both Daniel and Arthur in for questioning. And that's when they encounter the boy's mother, May Bannister. And boy, is she mad. She hollers and swears at the Mounties, calling them damned bunch of murderers and liars, which is a bit rich, considering what they've come to talk to her children about. Well, they take the brothers in anyway, and Daniel insists he was home all night on the 5th of January. He's adamant that his brother is the one who lost the mitten and that he did so when trapping several days before. His story seems to hold up under questioning, and after interrogating him through the night, they have to let him go in the morning. All right, so 
If Daniel wasn't the Bannister brother seen up at Pacific Junction on the 5th of January, then it must have been Arthur. In his own interview, Arthur admits that he'd been camping up in the woods near the lake's shack earlier in the week, on the night of the 2nd of January, with another friend, Earl O'Brien. He remembers borrowing his brother's gloves, so he must have lost it then. But when they ask him about the night of the 5th of January, he's suddenly less clear. He's always up in the woods there, he claims. It's hard to remember which day is which. When the Mounties question his friend, Earl, he confirms that they were there together on the night of the 2nd, staying in Philip Lake's hen house so that they could get up early to check their snares. Earl tells him that another young man and a teenage girl had come to their camp about two in the morning. He noticed that the girl was wearing men's breeches, but didn't recognize either of them. They'd come looking for Arthur, who spent about 20 minutes outside with him. When he came back in, Arthur told Earl it was just his brother and his sister, wanting him to come home. So it's kind of funny then that when they'd questioned Daniel, he didn't mention visiting the area just days before the fire. Is he also lying when he says he wasn't there on the 5th? Still thinking that the brothers know more than they're saying, the Mounties return to their questioning of Arthur. He and Daniel seem to have different accounts of the previous week, and the Mounties are hoping that they'll get tied up in their lies and accidentally reveal the truth. So Arthur is brought back into the interview room, and to everyone's surprise, he makes a confession. Sitting in the interview room in Moncton, Arthur admits to being inside the lake's house on the night of the fire. He says he'd been in the shack most of the evening, drinking and talking with the family. He names two other men who were there too. Friends of Phillips, apparently. Arthur says that things got a little heated and Philip threw a lump of firewood at him. The wood missed him, but it hit Bertha. Anyway, Arthur retaliated by grabbing it and hitting Philip over the head. He insists he left at that point and knows nothing more of what happened that night. Having gotten the two other visitors' name from Arthur, this story's pretty easy for the Mounties to unpick. The men are interviewed and are both outraged. They insist they were never at the shack that night. And what's more, they both have solid alibis. So Arthur's definitely lying, just like his brother. But what are they hiding? Meanwhile, some other clues have come to light. Firstly, a closer examination of those two tracks leading from the shack to Bertha's body reveal that there were actually three sets of footprints in the snow all walking together, and one of those sets of prints was smaller than the other two. Now, could that be the three Bannister siblings, Daniel, Arthur, and their little sister, Frances, walking together? Now, secondly, those tiny charred bones that the investigators have assumed were the remains of baby Betty Lake actually belonged to the family cat, which means that the six-month-old infant is still missing. While more Mounties head over to search through the rubble at the shack for any sign of her, the interview team turns their attention to Arthur again. Having disproved his original confession, they decide to charge Arthur with murder. They also charge Daniel 
and bring their 15-year-old sister, Frances, in for questioning because she was seen at the camp a few days prior to the fire. While the siblings are in custody, the Mounties head over to the Bannister family home. They want to get a hold of the britches that Frances had been seen wearing in the woods to see if they can find any evidence that she was there the night of the fire. When they confront the family matriarch, May, she protests, but eventually, reluctantly, goes indoors to fetch him, making sure to lock the Mounties outside. As she thrusts the pants into their hands, they ask if they can come inside. She refuses. They don't have a warrant, and she'll be damned if they're getting in without one. Well, <laughs> these Mounties have seen a guilty conscience or two in their time, and they're pretty sure they're looking at one right now. May Bannister is hiding something. They want to know what it is. From what they know of this desperately impoverished family, May is the only one who holds down any kind of work. Over in Moncton, where the girls sometimes sell wreaths or baskets they've made, May Bannister has actually found some gainful employment, working as a housekeeper for a businessman there called Milton Trites. If rumors to be believed, she's been performing other wifely duties for him too. If they want to find out what's going on in the Bannister's family, Perhaps a chat with Milton Trite is in order. Meanwhile, the three Bannister siblings back at the station are keeping the Mounties on their toes. With the tale of those two men at Philip's house proven to be a lie, Arthur has, unsurprisingly, changed his story again. Now he says that they made that bid up to hide the fact that his brother and sister had been there. So now, the new story goes like this. Arthur was up with the Lake family on the Sunday evening. That's the 5th of January, the night of the fire. He says he already found Philip drinking heavily and joined him for a while until Daniel and Francis turned up to take him home. That's when Philip apparently tried to make an indecent advance towards young Francis, and her brothers stepped in. Bertha tried to stop the fight and Philip threw a lump of firewood at her. Hitting her on the head, she grabbed her son, Jackie, and ran out into the night crying. Arthur says they knocked Philip out by hitting him with another lump of wood. In the scuffle, an oil lamp was knocked over. The Bannister siblings then ran away. His statements backed up by identical confessions from both Daniel and Francis. So identical, in fact, they must rehearse them for their arrests. Okay, so now they also admit that they turned to look from further up the tracks and saw the glow of the fire. They also heard a woman screaming for help. They didn't go back. Well, I mean, it's cold and callous, all right, leaving the family to die like that. But if this story is to be believed, murder's not the right charge. Oh, sure, I mean, they could have gone back to help. But the fire was accidental, and the attack to Philip Lake that left him unconscious was self-defense. And Bertha? Well, she ran out into the night on her own, right? So her death was surely accidental, too. But that's only if the version of the events is true. And unfortunately, these three have strung together far too many lies already 
for the Maoris to believe anything they say. It turns out they're right to be suspicious because over at the home of Milton Trites, the businessman May Bannister works for, the Maoris are hearing another interesting tale. Milton Trite admits that he and May have been having relations during the time that she worked for him. And then she told him she was carrying his child late last year, around November. Of course, he agreed that he would support her and the infant when it was born. Sometime in December, she told him that she'd had the baby and that it would be staying in Moncton for a little while for its health. And then he drops the bombshell. Apparently, on her invitation, he'd been to May Bannister's house on Monday, January 6th, to see his new baby girl. That's right, Monday the 6th, the day after the fire at the lake house that killed Philip, Bertha, and young Jackie. Of course, now you'll remember that the six-month-old baby, Betty Lake, has been missing ever since. Well, the Mounties waste no time heading back to the Bannister's house, and this time they demand to see the baby. They let them in, but insist that the child is hers. She claims she hid the birth because her estranged husband threatened to kill her if she had another child. Of course, the Mounties don't believe her and strongly suspect that this infant is the sole surviving member of the Lake family, Baby Betty. As another heavy snowstorm descends, May Bannister's literally hauled in for questioning, dragged on a sleigh through the icy storm. May sticks resolutely to her story, claiming that she had the baby in Moncton at the end of last year, but that the child had stayed in the town for health reasons. Conveniently, May had forgotten the name of the midwife who delivered her. But she does name two men who she claims saw her with the baby in Moncton. When these men are interrogated, they both say that yes, they saw her with a bundle, which could have been a newborn baby, but neither saw the actual child, nor heard a peep from it. And when searching the banister's squall at home, Mounties find a life-size baby doll all swaddled up, but with its little sound maker removed. The Mounties, wanting to positively identify the infant, turn to the lake's friends to find out more about the little girl. Omar, the station master, tells the Mounties that he's seen the baby a couple of times. He tells them to look for a distinctive strawberry-shaped birthmark on her head. They do, and guess what? They find it. Certain now that May Bannister is lying, they try to get her to confess once more, but she still insists that the baby is hers. So they tell her they'll bring someone in to examine her. A doctor can quickly confirm if she's given birth recently. Well, she flies into another of her rages at this, screaming, you can take the damn baby, but you won't take me as long as there's a drop of blood in my body. Mounties have heard enough lies from this whole family. They stick May back in her cell to stew while they try to piece together what really happened that night. How did the infant daughter of the murdered Philip Lake and Bertha Ring end up in May Bannister's care? And what part did she and her children play in the murders? 
You feel as though they're getting closer to a version of the truth, but there's still a lot to unpick. While May considers her story, the officers ponder what her three children have told them. Not one of them mentioned the baby in their statements, which seems suspicious. Not only that, but the Mounties are struggling to believe that these two scrawny, malnourished teenage boys would be able to knock a big man like Philip Lake to the ground, even working together, even with a lump of wood. Having serious doubts about the Bannister's children's story and seeing the unanswered questions piling up, the Mounties call for Philip Lake's body to be re-examined. But before they can do that, May finally relents. Calling the Mounties to her cell, she says, I'm in enough trouble already. I'm going to tell the truth. Well, the Mounties remain skeptical, to say the least. But here comes yet another version of the story. It goes like this. May admits that she lied when she said the baby was hers. She is, in fact, Betty Lake, as they suspected. But May says it was her daughter, Frances, who brought the child to her in the early hours of January the 6th, telling her that she'd rescued it from a burning house. Well, that already sounds like a lie, doesn't it? I mean, Frances never mentioned any baby in her statement. And let's not forget that Mae Bannister previously told Milton Trites that she was pregnant and had given birth to his baby in December. Whatever happened to that child then? Really quite strange, isn't it? That baby Betty, who's just about the right age to fit with May's pregnancy story, found herself in need of a home and family on exactly the day May invited Milton Trites to come and see his daughter for the first time. It sounds to the Mounties like an elaborate con to get money from old Milton Trites for ongoing family support. Anyway, playing along with May's life for now, they cross-interrogate her and Francis throughout the rest of the night. At first, Francis sticks to the original story and also claims that the baby is her mother's. But these Mounties are no strangers to cracking a suspect. Under intense pressure, Francis finally concedes and tells him yet another account of what happened on that Sunday night. Now she's saying that Arthur went along to the lake's house in the afternoon and that she and Daniel went over late in the day. She doesn't know why they had to go, but Arthur had insisted. It was a three-hour walk and they got there around midnight, she says. But now her story deviates from the previous statement. Instead of going inside, where Philip makes a pass at her and her brother leaps to her defense, this time, she says that she and Daniel never went into the cabin and, in fact, waited outside for Arthur for a full 15 minutes. When he finally came out, Arthur handed her the baby and she headed off for home. The boys apparently caught up with her 20 minutes later. And that's when they saw the glow of the fire and heard the woman's screams for help. With each new account, the Maudis have to unpick the lies from truth. But slowly, a picture's beginning to form. They're pretty sure that they know what happened and why. But they need something concrete to cut through the web of lies and half-truths. Fortunately, 
They're about to get exactly what they need. You remember how the Mounties doubted that these skinny, rat-faced boys could overpower Philip Lake, and remember how they asked for his body to be examined again? Well, it's a good thing they did, because x-rays have just revealed that he had already been dead before the fire consumed his body. He'd actually been shot in the head. They found a 22 caliber bullet lodged at the base of his skull. And that changes everything. The way the Mounties see it, Philip Lake and Bertha Ring were murdered so that baby Betty could be removed. They're pretty sure that Mae Bannister is behind the whole scheme. Struggling to survive without any support from her errant husband, she clearly cooked up another plan to put food on the table. Milton Trites. By having Milton's baby, she could guarantee at least some kind of income for her family, even if that did mean that she'd have yet another mouth to feed. But when she failed to get pregnant herself, the plan started unraveling. You see, she'd already told Milton that she was pregnant, so she'd need to produce a child somehow, which the Mounties believe is when she got the idea of taking the lake's baby, a baby that her son, Arthur, had seen on a number of visits. They reckon that May put the boys up to the kidnap. Now, it's not clear if they murdered Philip and Bertha deliberately to hide the baby's true identity, or if they killed the parents as they struggled to hold on to their child. Either way, the whole family's complicit in the plot to kidnap baby Betty and in the resulting deaths of Philip, Bertha, and their son, Jackie. There's still a lot of unanswered questions, but the Mounties now feel they have enough to go on. May is formally charged with kidnap, leading to murder, and Arthur and Daniel are charged with the murder. Francis, still a material witness and accessory to both crimes, is not charged. Recognizing that she may be the best chance the Mounties have of getting to the bottom of this web of lies, they hold her in the woman's quarters and the Moncton police station while the evidence is gathered. Arguably, this is probably the nicest accommodation she's ever had. At least there's warmth, food, and clothes, and her gratitude shows itself when she starts to talk more freely. The discovery of that bullet in Philip's skull has kicked off a search for the rifle that fired it. Nothing's found at the Bannister's house. A team of Mounties is sent to shovel the heavy snow around the spot where Bertha's body was found. Frances, meanwhile, has been busy filling in some of the details of that night. She tells the Mounties that her brother, Arthur, broke his rifle in two while they were walking back along the railroad. She says he threw the two broken parts of the gun into the snow, and she's pretty sure she can show him where. So, she joins the officers at the railway tracks and points to roughly where she saw Arthur throw his rifle away. Sure enough, they find the barrel and the butt almost exactly where she says. The barrel, along with the bullet recovered from Philip's skull, are then sent to an expert in Montreal who's just returned from studying the emerging science of ballistics analysis in Paris. Unsurprisingly, he finds that the marks on the bullet match the barrel perfectly. 
It's the most concrete form of evidence they're ever going to get. And the Crown feel that they have enough to secure convictions for the charges they've brought. They convince Francis to be a witness for the prosecution and promise her protection from charges. In return, she'll give evidence against both of her brothers and her mother in their trials. The preliminary hearings get underway in Moncton on January 13th, just one week after Otto Blakeney made his horrific discovery. I told you those Maudis were efficient, right? After a month of preliminaries, the trial dates are set, one following the other directly between February the 25th and April the 6th, 1936. Arthur first, then Daniel, and finally May. The case made headlines across the region, and the courtroom in Dorchester is packed when the trial gets underway. The surrounding hotels are all booked solid, and some entrepreneurial local residents have already made a small fortune renting out rooms in their houses to those wanting to watch the grim spectacle. The trials are long-winded, and the boy's lawyer does his best throughout to cast doubt on the Mounty's case in the end, both Arthur and Daniel are sentenced to death by hanging. On the morning of Wednesday, September the 23rd, 1936, the two Bannister boys are led into place on the trap doors where they'll be hung back to back at 1 a.m. The authorities set the time early to keep the public spectacle to a minimum. But it hasn't worked. Interest in the case is just too high, and the large crowds surround the jail. As one o'clock draws near, Daniel's moved into position first, standing calmly as the black cap is lowered over his head and the noose placed around his neck. He asks for the rope to be loosened slightly so that he can say his last prayer, in which he asks for forgiveness but still maintains he's being punished for someone else's crime. Standing next to him, his brother, Arthur, stays defiant. As the death march begins, he says, I'm not saying I am innocent, and the rest of the sentence gets lost in the ensuing noise. Those trap doors are made of heavy steel, and the sound they make as they clatter open leaves no one, inside or outside of the jail, in any doubt that the deed has been done. It was the last double hanging in New Brunswick, a tragic and perhaps unfair conclusion to a crime that many believe was the master plan of the boy's mother, May. And May is about to make history of her own because hers is the first trial for kidnap in the region's history. And it's not going to go the way the Crown hopes. You see, the evidence against May is largely circumstantial and rests on her daughter, Frances's testimony. The Crown would love to convict her of kidnap, but they're unable to prove that she was ever at the lake house or that she even asked the children to steal the baby for her. In the end, May Bannister is found not guilty of kidnap. Instead, 
The only charge they're able to prove is that she harbored the infant to help her sons evade justice for their own crimes. And while this makes her an accessory after the fact, it means she's not an accomplice to either the kidnapping or the murders. She's sentenced to the maximum penalty, but that only amounts to three and a half years in a prison. Many believe that May should have swung instead of her sons, or at least alongside them. And perhaps she should. After all, it was a convoluted plot, and it's unlikely her sons would have come up with it alone. But the truth was an elusive beast throughout this case. Without a single honest account to work from, justice was meted out, perhaps as well as could be expected under the circumstances. And while it's no defense to murder or kidnap, just take a moment to imagine the situation brought out by extreme poverty, deprivation, and starvation, which drove this family to such desperate measures in the first place. And as for the officers of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, it's amazing, really, that the whole investigation was conducted and concluded in the space of a week. Thanks to their sharp tracking skills, ruthless organization, and relentless hard work, those tireless, red-coated Mounties certainly got their man. In fact, they got two of them and their mother to boot. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Richmond, Virginia in 1885. The body of a young pregnant woman is found floating in the city's old reservoir. At first, the coroner thinks she died by suicide. That is, until he spots bruises on her face and a tear in her dress. He hands the case over to Charles H. Epps, captain of the Richmond Police Force, who begins investigating her murder. But with no way to identify her and no witnesses, it starts to feel like one of those cases that'll remain unsolved. And then, at the reservoir, he finds a clue among the weeds, a clue that'll bring him into the orbit of the suspected murderer. Epps will have to use every ounce of determination he has and put his career on the line in order to bring the woman's killer to justice. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for the Red Clay Murder. <laughs> 